Welcome to Don't Box Me In, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Well, hello, hello, hello. Like they said, I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to this week's edition of Don't Box Me In. Today, we are talking about first responders. Now, suicide is the number one cause of death for police officers every year. That's with nearly 200 deaths. Suicide is also a significant problem for all emergency first responders. That's police fire, paramedics, military, and trauma workers. And uh, 20% of first responders will have at least one life-altering addiction. And tens and thousands of first responders suffer from an acute, debilitating stress, emotional problems, or uh, serious physical ailments. My guest today, retired La Mesa Police Captain Dan Willis, is a former homicide investigator and SWAT commander who has developed wellness programs and specializes in providing emotional survival and wellness training for first responders throughout the country. He's a graduate of San Diego State University and the FBI National Academy. He is here today to shed some light and awareness on the emotional health of first responders. I'm so glad to have Captain Dan on the show today and extend a big welcome his way. Dan, welcome to Don't Box Me In. Thank you so much, Lana. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for spending some time with me. So, Dan, I kind of want to start at the beginning here and, you know, talk a, a little bit about your career, if that's okay. Um, I'm assuming when you started off with the uh, police academy and stuff, you were bright-eyed and optimistic about the positive difference that you were going to make. I'm curious, um, with your initial training reflected back years ago, were there, were there any kind of coursework that prepared you for the emotional and mental challenges of being an officer? No, not uh, not at all. And I was a 21-year-old kid and uh, put myself through the academy uh, 30 years ago, back in 1985. And uh, back then, pretty much the only uh, information training they gave us to try to survive the career was telling us to be physically in shape and to maintain that throughout your career. But there really was nothing at all about how to try to uh, positively deal with, to process all of the trauma and the acute stress and, and the uh, uh, tragic, terrible things that an officer sees day in and day out, year after year. Um, you're just kind of uh, trained to uh, deal with uh, the laws and uh, and the procedures and things and and hope for the best. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that uh, doesn't work with suicide being the number one cause of death every year. Yeah, I, I had, until I was uh, getting prepared for today's show, I did not realize the numbers were, you know, that high. And, you know, we have a group of people that are we look up to to be in the profession, uh, profession of saving people from these kinds of things, but here it is, they're suffering from these same problems, you know, themselves, you know, especially with the suicide. You, you just envision the police officer, you know, talking somebody down and through their struggles and, and tribulations, but, you know, inside quietly, officers are going through the same struggles and issues themselves. Um, I'm curious for you, uh, you know, you, you spent quite a bit of time uh, with the police. I think I read like 25 years, 28 years. Um, was there a particular case or a particular period in your career where you said to yourself, Dan, something's not right here. I'm, I'm not really feeling right about um, this emotionally. Was it a, a pivotal moment? There was. And uh, fortunately for me, uh, it happened uh, fairly early on in my okay. career. After about seven years on, uh, I was a detective working crimes of violence. And I was in the middle of a, a case where this man was taken up to uh, South Central Los Angeles, about 120 miles away, and had his head and hands cut off, and it took me seven years to actually work and solve that case. But about mm -hmm. in the middle of that 
uh, I still remember this uh, as it just happened uh, yesterday, and it was almost 30 years ago. Uh, I was uh, at home, and I just kind of realized that I was emotionally dead inside. I really didn't have any feelings anymore. I wasn't happy. I wasn't sad. I didn't feel engaged or connected to uh, my stepgirls or my wife. I felt indifferent mm-hmm. to a lot of things, and that, that wasn't me. That's not the, the uh, idealistic kid that came into the profession wanting to protect and give life to people and, and be a positive influence in the community. And I realized that's not only is that not me, that's not human to, to not mm-hmm. be able to feel that connection and, and to feel. I mean, we're emotional beings, first and foremost. Yes. And uh, thank goodness I had that realization, and, and it really uh, woke me up realizing that if I don't do something, there's no way I'm going to survive this career. And I started taking a real hard look at myself and all the things that I had stopped doing since becoming a police officer that I used to do that really breathed life into my spirit that I really loved and enjoyed. But as the job becomes more and more overwhelming and and, kind of all-consuming, you tend to stop doing the things that you used to. There's a lot of I used to's with the police officers Mm -hmm. and... and, um, I just started forcing myself to uh, to rediscover those things that brought joy and purpose and meaning into my life. Okay, okay. Now you were very fortunate. You said like seven years in. That's that's kind of early in to, to realize like I need to make some changes here. Um, but I'm assuming that your fellow uh, officers were not as lucky as you to realize you know something was going on. And, and I'm going to assume that it's not uncommon for an officer or first responder to go through their whole career without some sort of mental assistance to, to um, get them through these, these emotional things that they see on a day-to-day basis. So if an officer does not, or a first responder, let me say, does not receive any kind of um, help with the day-to-day uh, things that they see and have to encounter, what kind of things might manifest itself in that person? Well, one of the um, more prevalent things is the development of PTSD. And uh, the general public thinks of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as as something afflicting the military. But Mm -hmm. really almost one in five, nearly 20% of police officers are going to work every day with full symptoms of PTSD. And most of them, there aren't diagnoses that they they don't have any idea what they have. All they know is that they can't sleep anymore, that they have these uh, images that keep coming into their minds, these terrible images that they can't make go away, that they have these uh, panic attacks and it's difficult to breathe, that the, um, they're severely depressed, they have suicidal thoughts all the time and they never used to, and uh, they think that they're losing their mind. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of that is either just from one critical traumatic incident or just an accumulation of the acute stress of the job uh, over years because what PTSD really is is an injury to your brain. It's an injury to your brain's ability to process normal life. Um, And when that gets injured, that's why you keep reliving things over and over and over and over again because that part of your brain that processes things has been severely injured. Now, there are some things that can help heal that, but um, most officers don't realize what's out there and what's available. And also... um, Part of the things that I am teaching and promoting are ways to try to help um, mitigate those effects and help protect your spirit so hopefully you won't develop that type of an injury. Okay. I, I'm, 
you know, something I've always wondered, you know, about uh, people who choose these careers, these first responder careers. It's not like working at Disneyland where every day you see people who are, you know, filled with joy and it's a positive experience. Day after day after day, uh, first responders are um, hit with most often negative experiences and encounters. Um, and, and naturally, we assume that that's going to take a toll on a person, uh, but... I'm just curious, has, there's just, is it just something that historically has been sort of just deal with it or, or nobody has really wanted to put attention to it? It just seems like it, common sense that first responders would have always needed some assistance recovering from this day after day plethora of negative influence that they encounter. It's always has been, uh, a, a terrible problem within the first responder professions. And, and there are some things that kind of feed into it that have mm-hmm. um, promulgated it over the years. Uh, okay. One of the things is we, we tend to think that we're the supermen and superwomen okay. of law enforcement, that, you know, we're the tough guys, the tough tough women, and uh, we're, we're trained to deal with this stuff, and we're the ones that have to make control and sense out of everyone else's chaos and tragedies and violence, and we're not supposed to be affected by that. But... No, and, until an officer really realizes that they're human and that they fear and that they suffer and they bleed just like everybody else, and it's okay. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to uh, have some issues and problems after a really serious traumatic case or, or incident. But when you try to pretend that those things don't affect you, that's what really makes them even more susceptible to suffer from what they experience. And, and also, law enforcement is is really very uh, well insulated. They don't like to talk about issues or problems outside of law enforcement. Um, I mean, oh, they don't okay. even hardly do it within themselves. But so it's not really a natural thing for them to go out and seek help from a, a therapist um, okay. like they should. I, I teach that people officers should go once a year, as just like you go to a physical doctor once a year. They should be going to a trauma therapist once a year, even if nothing's wrong, just as a, mm-hmm. a form of maintenance and, and wellness. Um, and plus it gets them used to going and talking to somebody because if, if not, if we don't start taking seriously what this job does to us, um, no one is going to be served. I mean, when you call the cops and you need help, you don't want someone there who's an alcoholic, who's had two hours of sleep, who's despondent and, and having all kinds of other issues or problems. You need and deserve someone who's going to be there, who's, who's healthy and well, who, who's totally devoted to uh, service and is going to take care of you. And so it's in everyone's best interest to kind of embrace this whole thing of, you know, let's raise awareness that our officers are suffering out there, um, yes. and let's do what we can to provide the information and training for them so they can be well, so they can serve everybody the most professionally way they can. Okay. Now, this providing information and training, um, so reflecting f- from today where we're at now and back when you started uh, with the uh, police force, is there an individual or are, are captains now trained to spot when one of their officers are suffering or is there a mental health worker kind of, you know, rubbing elbows in the office with the officers to say, wait a minute, I probably need to call this person in the office and, and talk. Is, are there more uh, programs or tools put in place today than we've seen before to assist first responders with their emotional health? There's certainly much more now than uh, when I started my career, but uh, we we definitely have a long, long ways to go. What has really helped uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so 
is that more and more agencies are developing what's called peer support programs. And uh, basically what they are is a, a peer support team is made up of officers within that police department, uh, usually officers who are very experienced, who have been through some traumatic incidents and are very, very trusted. Um, and they form this team that are kind of the first line of support. Um, and they will either maybe notice that somebody might be off, uh, not really their real self, and they'll reach out to them and um, see if they need any type of assistance or help, or they're there if an officer or an employee uh, wants to go to talk to somebody and ask them, hey, mm-hmm. I'm having trouble with this call. I know that you had a similar one. How did you deal with it? So mm-hmm. uh, there are things like that. Um, sadly, there's not enough agencies who have peer support teams, but more and more are getting them, so at least there's some help because an officer really isn't going to go outside and talk to someone who's not a cop because they know okay. that person, doesn't matter how many degrees they have, they don't understand what it's like to do our work. But they are mm-hmm. likely to go to a colleague who, who not only understands and has been through it, but actually cares about them. You know, listening to you talk and, and listening and hearing that, you know, the police force is such an insulated um, atmosphere, I'm kind of envisioning that it would make it hard for uh, officers, first responders to even go home to the person who is supposed to be closest to you, a loved one, wife or whatever, um, family member, and, you know, just vent about the day's work to kind of relieve some of that pressure. Um, I, I'm going to assume that this this insulation, what you know, what happens at the, the station stays at the station, has its toll on marriages and family relations. It does. There's a much higher divorce rate with officers within any first responders. That's one of the really the biggest mistakes that uh, we make as officers is we don't include our spouses because our spouses really are and should be our critical lifeline of support. They know us better than anyone else, and we need to uh, incorporate them as our emotional survival partner. Um, okay. And we need to uh, not only share what's going on with us, but to to uh, have our partner feel comfortable to come up to us and say, hey, Dan, what, what's going on with you? You're not yourself. Okay. Did something happen at work or what? Because if we don't get that kind of feedback, we're never going to know what's going on because the job day in and day out, call after call, is changing us. And if mm-hmm. we're not aware of what's going on or, or are told what's happening to us, we're likely to change into someone our loved ones don't recognize anymore. And okay. then it's going to be too late. But... Um, and really, our spouses don't want to know the details of the mm-hmm. gore and everything else that we deal with. They just want to know that we're okay. So, uh, you know, if an officer had a bad day or a really tough call, he can just tell his spouse, I had a really bad call and it's really bothering me. I just need some time. And then let your spouse nurture you and take care of you the best way that they know how. But sadly, most of the time, officers don't even tell them that. You know, they'll get asked, how was your day? It's fine. No, and that's, in other words, shut up. I'm looking at the time here. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Today I'm spending some time with uh, Captain Dan Willis. He is the author of the book Bulletproof Spirit, the First Responders' Essential Resource for Protecting protecting and Healing Mind and Heart. Um, now, uh, Captain Dan, in your own personal story, 
your time with the uh, police force, you, you dealt with things, crimes of violence, child molestation, uh, homicide, and cold case. And, and you, you mentioned earlier that you found out early in your career, seven years in, you know, that you had to find a way to balance all of this. Um, but how – it just really seems almost impossible to balance – such things and come home and be a, you know, a, a caring husband and a caring father when day after day you're hit with, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking, just trying to balance a child molestation case where you see an adult, you know, do this to a child and you got to come home and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's hard to not carry that anger around. How, how is it that we can teach people to balance that out? It is uh, very hard because, um, as you mentioned, you know, every day, every call, uh, there is um, things working against us to turn us into someone our loved ones don't recognize. So we yes. really have to make that concerted effort on the proactive side to counteract that, you know, con- continually a consistent practice, or we're left vulnerable to suffer from everything that we see. What I have really found and experienced over uh, my 30 years is that the most effective, the most important thing any first responder can do to not only maintain their health and their wellness, but maintain their motivation to do the job, to love the work, um, and to be in tune with the nobility of what we do in protecting and giving life to people, is to uh, find in whatever way resonates with the officer, to find ways to serve with a spiritual heart. We have to remember that the essence of what we do is compassion, is compassionate service of trying to make a difference in people's lives. In every single call, uh, whether it's a, a stolen bike report from a kid or a homicide scene, every single call, first responders need to be making the effort to try to make a difference, to try to make a positive difference. And sometimes it's just taking the extra time and listening to somebody or offering some words of encouragement, maybe giving them some hope. Sometimes there's not a lot we can do, but a lot of times there is. And if you're mindful of that and you really are trying to be driven by your heart, to make a difference in people's lives out there with every call, that is going to do more to to help counterbalance all the negative stuff than anything else that I have experienced. Okay. Okay. Now, um, you know, you mentioned earlier this peer support, and I, I'm, I'm listening to you, you know, talk about the things that the individual has to do to maintain their, their emotional health. Um, and I, I think you were also saying it's still a – there's a lot of work to be done, so I'm assuming that there's a small amount of police forces across the nation that have programs in place. So what does the officer um, do at, or the first responder do when you're looking around the office and you see Johnny is drinking heavily, Susie's, Susie's marriage is failing, you know, Tom is cold and unapproachable, and maybe Brad has a, a gambling problem, but, you know, how do you, how do you garner peer support or where do you go when all – even the people that you work with are going through this dysfunction. And, and like you said, nobody really wants to talk about it. But you're sitting there saying to yourself, something, i got to do something. Is, are there resources out there for first responders um, to go to um, that are immediately accessible? Or do they have to seek out programs like you that are far and few in between? There are resources out there, uh, but the most important resource are our brothers and sisters that we serve with. And uh, you're right, there's uh, all kinds of officers that notice things, and the ma- vast majority of them kind of turn the other way because mm-hmm. really, it's uncomfortable. They really don't know 
how to approach the person, and, and you kind of think, wow, you know, uh, something's going on with him. I, I, hope, I hope he's okay. I hope for the best, mm-hmm. and they move on. And the tragedy of that is, you know, that person that you're noticing not being themselves, that's the person that officer depends upon every day to go home safe to his wife and family. Mm-hmm. So if you don't reach out and try to do something to uh, help that person, your, your own life uh, potentially is uh, in danger. So uh, just, just things as simple as, hey, you want to go get a cup of coffee? I've noticed you haven't been yourself lately. Um, just simple words to reach out where someone's not going to react defensively. Hey, I'm here for you. Uh, if there's anything you need, just uh, just let me know. Just simple, easy things like that, and, and at least the person knows that somebody has noticed and cares enough to be offering themselves. And sometimes that really goes a long, long way. It's not only saving a career, but potentially even saving a life. Mm-hmm. Most, most agencies have what's called uh, uh, employee assistant programs where they contract out to a therapist. Um, okay. it, but officers typically won't go there on their own. They should. As I say, they should be going mm-hmm. once a year just as a maintenance thing. So uh, there's, there are other resources like that. But uh, once an officer starts getting in trouble or starts getting more and more complaints or starts um, uh, having some misconduct, probably because these other issues are bothering him so much and he starts getting disciplined, then he's on a path of uh, that's usually not going to end, end very good. And if you end up having to be ordered to go talk to a therapist, it's um, probably too late to save your job. Hopefully it will help, help with your life and your marriage. But uh, there's so much that, that officers can do to look out for each other to take better care of not just themselves but each other because we depend on each other for our own life. Okay. Now, forgive me, Captain Dan, because I think I watch too much TV, too much Law and Order. So <laughs> it's not right. a requirement. It's not a requirement after an officer, you know, um, witnesses a uh, or is part of a shooting or something like that that they they mandatory have to go see a counselor. There's nothing mandating after you do this, you have to go talk to somebody. There, there, there's nothing like that in place? In a shooting, uh, in most agencies that I, I know of, uh, that you'll be put on administrative leave for a period of a couple of days, maybe two or three days, and uh, before you come back to work, the agency has you go talk to the police department's therapist um, just to evaluate you to make sure you're okay to, to uh, come back. You're not suffering any um, after effects of experiencing that trauma. Kind of a, they call it a return to work interview. Uh, okay. um, so most agencies will do that, but just on a shooting. But there's okay. so much more that, that affects yes. us even more than a shooting that officers deal with, you know, day in and day out. The horrible uh, uh, collisions, uh, the dismembered bodies, the, the yes. horrible child molest cases, and, and or just getting in a fight for your life and someone's trying to take your gun. And, and maybe you don't end up getting involved in a shooting, but that trauma of you've almost lost your life and in a fight for your life. Uh, those kind of things, you aren't ordered to go talk to anyone. But what some agencies are doing, and this is through the peer support teams, it's really invaluable, is um, the department will order everyone involved to attend what's called a critical incident uh, stress management debriefing. And that's where they'll sit in with the police psychologist and uh, usually a chaplain and some peer support people, and everyone will talk about the incident, you know, their involvement in it, uh, how it affected them, um, and, and things like that. And, and those kind of things have really shown to help people process what happened. And remember, PTSD is an injury to your brain's ability to process. So doing something like that can help process and help prevent 
hopefully, um, your brain being injured from that incident. And so things like that are happening, and more and more agencies are doing them, but uh, there needs to be a whole lot more. Okay. Now, um, do, you know, you mentioned earlier that cops tend to think that, you know, they're the tough guys or whatever. So is there a warming up to uh, this concept of sitting down and talking to somebody? I'm assuming that, you know, some of the tough guy cops might think that's foo-foo, you know, candles and pillows and, you know, sitting on the couch talking to somebody. I mean, is it becoming uh, – are first responders becoming more open to sitting down and talking to somebody about their problems? They are, especially as uh, more and more uh, first responders are from the, uh, the younger generation. But, okay. Uh, even the, the older officers. When I uh, when I wrote my book, Bulletproof Spirit, um, which provides uh, dozens of proactive emotional survival and wellness strategies, and then I was presenting some of the training to my officers from it, I would go to the lineup and I would just start out by asking, you know, raise your hand if this job has adversely affected your life, adversely mm-hmm. affected your relationships, the quality of your life, um, and every single hand always went up immediately from the guy that was mm-hmm. still in training to the officer <laughs> that had been there for 30 years. So officers just inherently know that this job uh, significantly impacts us. We all know that. Um, so the next question I would ask is, okay, so what do we do about it? Do we just do nothing and hope for the best, which really isn't in our nature? Or can we kind of talk about what we can do to try to mitigate some of these uh, negative traumatic things that we're going to experience throughout our career. That was kind of how I, a way that I got some buy-in from them is because as they recognize, yeah, this job has changed me and has affected my relationships and the quality of my life, uh, there's got to be something we can do. So when, uh, the main thing is just raising awareness and letting people know you don't have to just hope for the best because over half of the officers who start their career will never finish. Hmm. Uh, they'll, they will leave because they get injured, they get uh, uh, disinterested, they end up hating it, uh, uh, they just can't do it anymore, their spouse makes them, I mean, all kinds of things. So uh, over half won't make it to a full retirement. And, um, you know, when I start my presentations, I'll say, we're going to be talking about how to emotionally survive this job so you don't end up divorced four times, an alcoholic, um, suffering from PTSD, wanting to kill yourself, hating people, hating the job and everything else. They're saying that's not inevitable. There's things we can do to help to prevent that. Okay, awesome, awesome. Captain Dan, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back right after this. Let's return to Don't Box Me In with your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Don't box me in. Today I'm spending some time with the author of the book, Bulletproof Spirit, the first responder's essential resource for protecting and healing mind and heart. That's Captain Dan Willis. And uh, Captain Dan, in your book, you talk about this concept, hypervigilance, and um, it's uh, enhanced sensory state, uh, sensitivity accompanied by an exaggerated intensity of uh behaviors. Now, you would think a first responder needs to live in that, that zone, but I guess they don't? Uh, they definitely do. And uh, the problem is it's very difficult to turn off. So uh, what really hypervigilance is, is that state of heightened awareness and aggressiveness that you're always on guard. You're always 
anticipating maybe somebody doing something, and if so, how do I react? And you're always constantly looking around because the officers, uh, unlike any other profession, um, when we go to work and we kiss our wife goodbye, what we're thinking of is, I hope I get to see you again mm. because we realize that there are people out there that will kill us if they mm-hmm. get the chance. And it could be the person that pulls up next to us at a stoplight. It could be the person walking down the street as we're talking to somebody. It could be someone who walks up behind us while we're sitting in a restaurant, uh, like the four officers up in Seattle who got a bolt mm-hmm. in the back of their head. And you have to constantly always be on guard expecting that someone's going to potentially do something. And that's we have to do that to be safe and survive. problem is uh, you can't just turn that off. And when you get like that constantly, your, your body adjust and you never really rest um so you end up it ends up significantly affecting sleep and most officers only sleep about four hours a night that was a study Mm. of five thousand cops when we need eight or nine and uh, so it starts affecting all kinds of aspects of our life of our quality of our life and our ability to process things because when you're not getting sleep you're not processing stress you're not dealing with things in a healthy constructive way and this hyper vigilance just keeps adding and adding and adding to that and uh, I like to tell people it's not an on-off switch, but think of it as a dimmer switch. And when you're off-duty, kind of dim it down a little bit in the back of your head and tune into your new role of, as you walk into the front door, your your role of being a, a husband, a dad, a coach, um, whatever other roles that you have, and focus and attune and be mindful of that and drop the part of being a cop. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume that um, even when you're on the job, if you're living in this state of hypervigilance um, and always being on to- on your toes or always on guard, um, as we've seen in, in numerous cases, uh, you know, in the news in the last few years, sometimes first responders can make some bad judgment calls because we're we're, we're on guard and 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 sometimes to protect and serve, we're not necessarily protecting or serving. Correct. Right, that uh, you know that does happen not only from from the hypervigilance and mm-hmm. dealing with lack of sleep and and just the buildup of acute stress and not processing yeah. things. Um, I, I've been convinced over the years that one primary reason why good cops end up doing things to get in trouble is this thing about that has the job eats away at our ability to feel and to be connected to the closest people in our lives and to be mm-hmm. indifferent. I think that eats away at a part of our conscience. Mm-hmm. If you're a police officer and you start losing a part of your conscience because you're losing the ability to feel, it's probably not going to end up very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, not even being a first responder, you know, I constantly tell people if you're continuously around, you know, a negative situation, it's quite natural that you're going to absorb that and, you know, reflect that, that energy back. So the best thing you can do is remove yourself from the situation. But unfortunately, we're first responders. That's your job. That's your career. That's what you, you know, you want to do. You, you have faith in it that, you know, you're, you're trying to do good work, that you are doing good work. So you can't necessarily remove yourself from the situation. Um, and it's not like you're going to stop encountering you know, uh, child molesters or, you know, other criminal activity. So uh, the best thing we can do is what you're doing is is finding ways to protect the mind and heart of these first responders. Now, um, you know, you mentioned you're right. this, You certainly uh, can't remove yourself from those situations. <laughs> but uh, you can certainly change your attitude. You can certainly yes. work on trying to uh, make a difference and trying to serve with compassion and, and, uh, and to uh, help people even in the uh, darkest uh, moments. 
darkest moments. Yeah, and I, I just, I, you know, I can only fathom some of the stuff that you guys see. Um, I mean, and just to have to take that that home with you um, and have to tell the world, you know, I'm okay. And I think that's expecting too much of the general public, you know, of an individual. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you guys are human beings yourself. So, I mean... I, I just think it's so much weight uh, and so much unrealistic expectation that's been put on uh, first responders. And, you know, I, it's it's a wonderful thing to see, you know, some of the programs that you've developed. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, I, I think I read, though, that it's only like 3% of the population, the police force population that actually has programs in place to, to, to protect or to, to service the emotional health of their officers. Well, only about 3% have a, an active suicide prevention or suicide okay. awareness program. Um, there's there's a much higher percent that have peer support teams that are trying to okay. reach out and help the emotional survival. But, uh, you know, suicide's the number one problem, and it's still not very recognized as much. Mm. And that's just because, is it the police force, like you said, they're such a tight-lipped kind of organization, they don't want to give... You know, credence to that, or exactly. why, why are we? And we just tend okay. to uh, look the other way. I mean, it's a it's a uh, admission of, of weakness seen by mm-hmm. us when it's when it's not. Because uh, when you when you suffer from what you experience as a police officer, it's not about what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. It's mm-hmm. all about what happened to you. And um, you know, I worked for a small agency, sixty eight sworn officers, and I know of three that that had a gun in their mouth. Thank goodness they mm-hmm. never pull the trigger. Um, but uh, there's a lot of officers that are out there uh, suffering. And um, we really, the public and, and uh, the officers in the agencies themselves really need to just kind of understand more and uh, not to excuse behavior, certainly not, because the officer mm-hmm. does something inappropriate, then they absolutely need to be held accountable or, or terminated if it's bad enough. But uh, just an understanding. You know, when the officer shows up and he, he you might perceive that he's rude, it might not just be because he's a bad guy. It might be because he's had one hour of sleep and he just had a fight for his life three hours earlier, and maybe he just was at a dead baby scene. Um, to just kind of raise awareness that there's a lot more going on with these officers than them just waking up one day and saying, I hope I get to kill someone, because we don't. Mm-hmm. We wake up and we say, I hope I get to go home to my wife yeah. and kids. Yeah. I mean, and that's a privilege that so many of us that are not first responders just take for granted. And to listen to you say that that's just, you know, that's just an everyday, ordinary occurrence. I just I just hope I get to come home tonight. And and that in itself speaks volumes. I mean, um, I mean, but that's that's a reality. And like I said, emotionally, I just cannot even fathom that kind of that kind of stress and pressure now. Um you you also you were talking you you do these emotional survival uh, training seminars for first responders um how, how long have you been at that uh well i retired a little over a year ago so okay. i really started doing it uh as i retired uh and that's when the book bulletproof spirit came out so uh for last year i gave over 50 emotional okay. survival presentations in eight different states so uh, it's uh, going real well. If anyone's interested, they can just go to firstresponderwellness.com, and uh, they can either get the book or contact me uh, through there. 
Okay. Now, prior to this, you know, like I said, we talked earlier, you know, that seven years into your career, you realized that I've got to make some changes. And up until uh, now, you said a year ago, you just started um, conducting these emotional survival training seminars. So um, were there things that you were doing um, within your own uh, station, you know, to help and assist your officers deal with things? Little things that you implemented, implemented that were not really, you know, some some formatted program. Yeah, we really uh, enhanced our peer support team and and uh, training for them to be able to recognize when uh, a dispatcher or an officer is uh, going through a hard time, and to train uh, our peer support team and others how to reach out in the most effective way and how to be uh, more aware. Um, and uh, training that I had brought in from uh, professionals, either uh, uh, trauma therapists or things that would give presentations to our agencies and, and conferences that we'd go to to uh, try to seek out more training. And uh, a lot of the uh, proactive uh, initiatives that I write about in Bulletproof Spirit, um, I would get out and, and teach our agencies mm-hmm. and our officers because a lot of it are things that uh, an individual officer can do and needs to be aware of and and practice and practice it consistently. And the more that they do on the proactive side, the better off they're going to be to uh, hopefully not be so adversely affected by what they experience at work. Mm. Now, your seminars, um, are they multiple days or just a day or? The the full class is four hours. Uh, So depending on the agency and their needs, I've done it as uh, short as an hour and a half or, or the full is four hours and uh, I go to police conferences or to their individual agencies, uh, whatever whatever their needs are. And um, it, it, what I hear uh, pretty much universally from these presentations are people come up to me and say, I really wish I had this kind of information when I started my career because it would have saved mm-hmm. me a lot of heartache. <laughs> I can imagine that. Um, you know, and just a quick thought listening to all of uh, conversation today um and I, I know there's testing for you to even become a uh, police officer uh does some of that testing measure the capability the emotional capability of a person to withstand what he or she will be exposed to in the future in their career it does uh generally but there's there's really uh no type of test or nothing to predict Mm-hmm. Or, uh, likelihood to develop PTSD or to suffer um, maybe suicidal thoughts or depression because of a critical incident that might happen in your future. But to actually, we go through, as most agencies go through, over 100 applicants just to find one person who can pass the background investigation, and there's a psychological test that they do go through. Um, so it, it's really difficult to get hired, and we hire really good, stable, emotionally sound people so the fact that suicide is the number one cause of death really tells you what that job does to us. Oh, wow. Wow. Wow, that's something to digest there. Um, you know, suicide, then the fact that, you know, so many of them don't even make it to have a full career with retirement. You know, they just say, forget it, this is not for me. Um, you know, you, you just you just don't really understand how overwhelming the the job and the experience is for first responders. I mean, I just, um, I'm, I'm hoping that people will uh, 
listen to this interview and, and take away a little bit more sensitivity because sometimes, you know, you guys can't get the bad end of the stick and, you know, oh, you know, forget the police, da da da, da. But I, I think, you know, there, there might be a little bit more sensitivity needed to what you guys are going through just to get up every day and do your job. Well, I hope so because it's really needed. It's needed for not only the, the health and wellness of the officers but for the safety of our community because the safety and, and the well-being of the communities are directly related to the health and wellness of the officers who protect it and serve it. Very true, very true. Captain Dan, we're going to take our last commercial break of the day. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Lana Reed, and welcome back to Don't Box Me In. Today I have spending some time with Captain Dan Willis. He is the author of the book, Bulletproof Spirit, The First Responders, the Essential Resource for Protecting and Healing Mind and Heart. And uh, before the break there, we were talking uh, a little bit about your seminars. And I forgot to ask, uh, what kind of uh, topics or what do you cover in your seminars? If, uh, well, I start off uh, talking about the need, the critical need for uh, emotional survival training, kind of going over the... Uh, the uh, disheartening statistics, the kind of health of uh, our officers out there, and um, the reasons why uh, officers are likely to suffer um, so many adverse effects and, and the warning signs that will let an officer know that, that something's not right inside of them. They're not really processing stress, and uh, there should be red flags to do something about it. Then uh, I go into hypervigilance and, and ways to mitigate its effect on officers and uh, and I go into the um, 30 to 40 proactive emotional survival and wellness strategies that uh, they can do that's totally within their control to uh, practice um, and, and take personal responsibility for their own wellness. Okay, awesome. Now, we've been talking all day about um, first responders and, and their needs, uh, but there's a, a group of people that are surrounding these people that need some information, some assistance and support as well, and that is the loved ones of first responders. Um, so are there resources or is there anything out there um, to help and assist and support the loved one of first responders? Well, the uh, an individual police department's peer support team should be, if it's an active, uh, effective, proactive uh, peer support team, should be reaching out to family members because they realize that family members are the most critical part for an officer's health and wellness and, and their ability to process um, what, what the officers experience at the job. And what, uh, what officers really need to remember is how hard it is to be married to us. Because mm-hmm. if, if you think about it, uh, you know, we probably wouldn't choose to be married to someone who is never home, who's always working overtime, who's, who works nights for years on end, who's never home on holidays, who... Um, whose mood changes or, or uh, is getting angry or depressed and, and all kinds of issues that officers deal with and the wives are just kind of, or the spouses are left thinking, you know, what's going on and what about me? So mm-hmm. it, it's essential for officers to, to make their spouse their, their partner in emotional survival, not only for their wellness but for their spouse's wellness because it's really, really difficult to be married to us. And there's several things that uh, our spouses and, and family members can do toward helping us survive. And, and one of the most important things is just to create the home atmosphere, a home that an officer looks forward to coming home to all day long. Because uh, if you think about it, if uh, as soon as an officer gets into the home, if he's going to 
get hit with an argument about why are you never home, why are you always working overtime, um, you never want to do anything anymore, you're not interested in, in anything, they're going to find a lot of other things to do instead of coming home. Their the overtime yes. shift starts looking pretty good. Uh, <laughs> a lot of drinking, they can do all kinds of stuff. So if, if the spouse and, and family create this home that all day long when the officer's at work, he's thinking about home and can't wait to get back, that's going to be more to uh, help him emotionally survive the job probably more than anything else. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned with your own um, situation, you would realize you were kind of emotionally detached from your family. Now, you know, with your wife, um, as adults, we have a little bit more emotionally uh, maturity to kind of say, well, you know, my husband, you know, because of his job, he's going through these things. So I can I can kind of hold on and I can kind of be understanding because, you know, that's the consequences of the job. But um, with with the children, how does the, the spouse navigate you know, explaining, or mommy and daddy's a little detached, or whatever now because of how do you how do you get the kids to be in a safe place, the parent, the, the children of first responders to be okay emotionally in the house with with that person. Well, that's a that's Lana is a really excellent point to bring up. I'm glad you did because not only are officers victims of their profession, their spouse and their kids mm-hmm. are victimized by the profession because of how it affects us and what we bring home. And unfortunately, what happens so often is um, the spouse will, will tend to kind of, you know, huddle the kids and, and, hey, don't bother Dad when he gets home or give him an hour or something or he's not in a good mood right now, leave him alone and go down the street and play with whoever. Dad doesn't really feel like it. And, and doing stuff like that just tends to isolate the officer more and more. He already is tending to isolate himself to deal mm-hmm. with the stress and the job, which is not healthy. Um, and then uh, without knowing any better, the, the family will tend to enable that and, and, and isolate him even more, thinking he just needs his space. But what really he, the officer needs is, is to be um, engaged with life, to be engaged with his family, with his kids, whether he feels like it or not. To, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, without being, um, with, with, without being a judge, judgmental, or, or, or nagging, or, or forcing someone to do something, there, there's, I mean, spouses know how to bring things up to our attention where we'll get it, where we're maybe not giving the attention to the family that we should be doing, um, and encourage us to do things. Um, so uh, in that way, they can help us to remain engaged and being active with our kids and, and, and with the spouse and being involved, because the more we isolate ourselves, the more the job is going to keep affecting us, and it's kind of a snowball effect. That's a good point. I mean, because, you know, being a nurturing person, you might want to, you know, tell the kids, you know, leave daddy or mommy alone, but it might be best to just have the kid jump on dad or mom on the couch and, you know, let me show you what I made at school today. You know, um, you just, you, I mean, like I said, you think you're doing something good, but, you know, to actually do the opposite might have a better effect for that person, you know, to keep them involved in the home atmosphere, which, I mean, at this point is pretty much probably the only piece of sanity that that person probably has. Exactly, and it's essential for the officer to to express to his spouse what he needs because mm-hmm. no one's a mind reader. And, um, you know, if, if you're starting to isolate yourself, the spouse is going to think, oh, he needs time alone, I'll leave him alone, when really – I've seen it so many times. The officer wants his spouse to be nurturing and comforting and, and to come come be with him, but he doesn't say that. And, and we really have to express what we need. And, and typically, a spouse will do whatever we want. If 
they are nurturing, caring people. That's why we married them. But we have to let them know what we need and, and let them help us and take care of us while we take care of them. So I'm thinking maybe that should be your next class. So you think you want to marry a police officer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Look what you're getting into. There should be some sort of class like that. (laughs) That could could be a several-day class, I think. (laughs) I guess so. So you said you uh, wrote the book um, a year ago. What made you sit down and say, hey, Dan, let's do this? Uh, What happened was um, I went to the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia. That's a... um, it's kind of run like a college semester. It's a 10-week uh, course for senior police management throughout the country. And uh, one of the classes I took was emotional survival. And uh, during that class, I, I really took a hard look at how the job had affected me over the years and so many of my colleagues that I've seen suffer. And I just came to this understanding of we, there's got to be something. There's got to mm-hmm. be something out there to enable us to take control of our destiny and what's happening to us. And I started doing a lot of research and realized there's a lot of information about how the job affects us, but there's really not anything out there about what you can do about it. So that was the whole impetus for the book of, of coming up with the proactive things that first responders can do to help protect, heal, and nurture their spirit so their spirit doesn't suffer from what they experience. Okay. So is the the book in conjunction with the seminars, or, it, or was it something totally different than the seminars? But the the book came first, and then I developed the seminar, um, just kind of taking the highlights, most important uh, aspects of the book, and incorporating them into uh, the seminars. So they kind of go hand-in-hand together. Okay. Now, how do uh, people pick up a copy of your book? Best way is to go to firstresponderwellness.com, and on the front page there are links there to either get a hard copy of the book or to download it. And there's also my contact information if uh, they're interested in a in a seminar or anything else. Okay. Now, you know, in parting, if you could send uh, a, a message to the general public about first responders to help them understand, what would you say to us? The main thing is for the general public is to just understand that the officer who's serving you uh, is a human being, that he's got a family, he's got a spouse, he's got kids. When he goes and leaves them every day, the only thing he's thinking about is, I hope I get to see you and I hope I get to come home tonight, that uh, I wish the general public understood the tremendous devotion and the sacrifice that their officers do day in and day out, not because of anything else other than they want to protect and help people. Uh, By far, that's why the vast majority of us became police officers in the first place, and uh, and, uh, most of them are driven by the heart to do whatever is needed to, to help people and to serve them. And, uh, and if the general public realizes that, um, and it's not us against them, it's we're together, we're part of the community, and uh, we all need to work together to make the community the safest and uh, best that it can be. I think we'll all be better off. Wonderful. We all need to work together. Wonderful tip. Uh, we are at the end of our hour, Captain Dan. Uh, my guest today has been Captain Dan Willis. Please visit his website, firstresponderwellness.com. Dan, thanks for hanging out with me today. Thank you so much, Lauren. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember, when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and I'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.